Absolutely. No, it's, it's, it's flipped, it's fresh, it's new. You know, you asked me what, what were some of my most riveting experiences, probably working on the Oscars oh. a couple of times. I did the Oscars a couple of times. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of B1 Bytes. My name is Ezra. I'm one of your new podcast officers for this semester. And today I'm joined by Travis, our podcast director, and our guest, Dr. Lisa Detheridge. Dr. Lisa Detheridge has a PhD in media ecology from New York University, has a master's degree of political science from the University of Melbourne, is a recent research partner with Microsoft and the CSIRO, and is also an associate researcher for OpenAI, the developers of ChatGPT. At RMIT, she supervises research across industrial design and innovation strategy, games, robotics, multiverse and virtual environments, artificial intelligence, and digital media. Dr. Lisa Detheridge, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you, Ezra and Travis. Happy to be here. So obviously you very much specialize in the media space. Could you tell us about your journey to, to get to a point where you were writing uh, and producing for places like Vogue and The Age? Um, my journey as a media producer mm. really took off when I went to New York to do my doctorate. Before that, uh, as a creature of the late 20th century, I was always fascinated with the heritage media, formerly known as film, television, print, mm. and was active across those. I was making video when video first became accessible as a sort of democratic tool in the 80s, um, was making documentaries and art projects. I had a band. I sort of tried to get active with, get my hands on as many of the new tools as I could, often with groups of people, and work on collaborative, fun projects. Then uh, while I was at Melbourne Uni doing an arts degree, my undergrad, I was also working at film school at the same time. I did two mm. programs at once, feeling that I needed to be hands-on in the production department. And so when I went to work in the States, um, I just did the same thing, really. While I was studying at uni, I kept making sure that I was working in a hands-on way. And that ended up with jobs at places like... Um, the United Nations. Um, I worked with a company, a sort of a startup company out of NASA called mm. Space Test for a while. I, my doctorate was on aerospace research, uh, aerospace communications specifically, which of course got me interested in robotics and everything which is now sort of coming online and that we are starting to take for granted was in a birth phase back then. So I, I feel like I was a handmaiden for a lot of those technologies. A lot of the time I was working to um, market and promote them, to use ordinary everyday language to explain tools and concepts that were new. Um, saw that as being pretty important. It was all very optimistic, gung-ho, rah-rah stuff. Then when I was working in the aerospace field, the Challenger, the Space Shuttle right. Challenger yes. went down yes. and the business stalled completely 
Nobody wanted to know about aerospace <laughs> after that. So I went back to Hollywood and started working for the Dream Machine, which was quite, quite uh, a respite. That was sort of a rest after the hardcore business of looking at the military end of aerospace as well as the civil. It was fun just to go back to making movies and fluff entertainment. So I think that um, there's always been a hardcore technical side. I've got engineers and lawyers in my family. Um, love the engineering aspect of life, the thing of making things and making them work, using the tools, um, but also captivated by human imagination and where we might be heading as a species. Yeah, I, I think it's really interesting that they're kind of like, some people think of it as opposites, that you have the very like technical, formulaic, engineering brain focusing on that kind of building and math. And then on the other hand, you have like this very creative imagery media. Do you find that that kind of background and the, the very methodical engineering thinking has helped when you're making these articles or writing these screenplays? Oh, absolutely. Um, yes, I forgot to mention that when I was working in the US in Hollywood, it was for the large studios. So there was companies like uh, MTV, right. which was oh. then just sort of moving forward very quickly and tearing up everybody's minds with the, <laughs> the concept of music video, um, ETV, entertainment television. So a, a lot of the time, these pla these sorts of platforms, because they were those early entertainment platforms, were a bit like the information platforms and social media platforms that we work with today. In that, they represented mass masses of people coming together, and kind of sharing and swapping um, taste ideas. Could you have some examples of? kind of the media projects you've worked on, maybe at MTV or some of the screenplays that you've written? Um, MTV was fun for a while. I helped them with their branding. Um, they were looking for ways of developing what, what you call interstitial programming, which is sneaking in between the ads and in between the programming advertisements for yourself, which was about then... Uh, this, this was really the beginning of hardcore branding exercise. It's like, how could we explain who MTV was just using logos, a few graphics, the briefest of brief messages? Mm. So in a way, this was the beginning of meme culture. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And similarly, the, the work with Vogue, where I was fortunate with Vogue Australia, they gave me my own column. So uh, when I was working in Hollywood, I was there, American correspondent, and sometimes writing from Europe as well. And they'd let me kind of curate my own story ideas, um, which was great. And I guess that makes me an early influencer. So <laughs> I, I sort of see this very straight and direct line between the kind of stuff that we were doing in the 80s, 90s and noughties and what's happening today. And the evolution has been so rapid, it's just exhausting to consider really so fast moving as one of the earliest influencers and one of the first people to make memes do you have any advice for the the future influencers and the meme makers out there <laughs> no i'm taking my advice from you guys now <laughs> absolutely no it's 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 flipped 
It's fresh. It's new. You know, you asked me what what were some of my most riveting experiences, probably mm. working on the Oscars oh, a couple of times. Wow. So I did the Oscars a couple of times. What part um, of the Oscars? I produced coverage for TV New Zealand one year mm. when a film of theirs called The Piano won an Oscar. Wow. Um, and so that got me the credentials. I think I, w- I was doing it through Channel 9 Australia. Uh, and um, TV New Zealand, and that got me the credentials, which in those days were incredibly hard. I'm sure it's equally hard these days to get your foot in the door mm. of the Oscars yeah. um, and to cover it, and just the scale of the operation. Um, that was mm. fascinating, and I learned a lot. That was probably one pinnacle. And again, you might say, well, the content's kind of fluffy, but it was the scale and the unity you know, when you go to Egypt and you see how they made the pyramids, you realise so many people must be working together <laughs> to make this thing happen. And Hollywood, which is now kind of a heritage institution, mm. I think. Yes. Hollywood is like a living museum piece in a way. But if we look at it, it's about understanding how big groups of people must come together to share a vision and make it happen. So... Um, I think going back to Hollywood a bit, you kind of get two different perspectives of Hollywood. You have some some groups of people think it's like flashy, exciting, energy, bubbly, and a really exciting place to be, and you're hanging with celebrities. And then the other view is it's kind of a dream-shattering, overworked, like very cutthroat kind of culture. How did you kind of find it? I found it the former. Mm -hmm. I love the Californians, Mm. other people... You know, they're cool. They're, they're um, thoughtful, very kind. Um, they share information. Mm. The thing is about that culture, it's a meritocracy. Mm. So you're only as good as your product. You're only as good as your last movie, you know, um, or your last script. So you're only good if you're practising. So there's no room in that culture for any kind of laziness, Mm. distraction. Um, But if you're on it and you're working, it's the best place to be. Mm. Um, There is a degree of sort of stoicism required. You've either got to be fully delusional or fully stoic to survive in a cutthroat environment like that. Do you you find that a kind of stoic ideology... um, that's kind of helped you in kind of your research and the way you think about um, the AI kind of sphere? Do you find that your approach is one very stoic? That's an interesting question. Um, yeah, but I think it's also damaged me. Mm. So as a, as a prototype worker of the late 20th transitioning into early 21st century, I think that my crew were severely punished if we hung in there and went through the loops, it meant we overworked tremendously. And you see that now, perhaps, with your parents' generation. Um, You know, we took a lot of punishment. We accepted 40 hours, 34-hour week, but we worked 50 or 60 to get stuff done. And that then became the norm, which is... um, It's not very healthy, is it? So you get to the end of loops like that, feeling feeling a bit crushed, 
um, we definitely need change around that. Um, I think before we talk more about AI, just kind of one of the last things we were wondering more on the media side of your experience is that we've seen that social media's kind of had a changed media landscape a bit. Um, it's much more freelance commentators. It's independent journalism. Where do you think the media will be in the future? And are you happy and think it's a good thing that this trend is occurring? Yeah, so we've gone from a broadcast universe where it's about one to many to now a sort of a chaotic babel mm. of many to many, which I think is a rehearsal for something that we haven't seen yet, where what I notice with the advent of new platforms, including social media platforms, is the content is not really the point. And Marshall McLuhan talked about this in relation to television in the 60s when he coined the famous term, the medium is the message. In other words, it doesn't really matter what people are babbling about. It's the fact that they're babbling between each other. It's the pattern of communication that we need to take notice of, not the content. Um, so, for example, when I see kids uh, in shared online spaces like Fortnite, Roblox, Minecraft, whatever, um, and I've designed in those spaces and been fully immersed in them and addicted to them for certain times and feel like I have an intuitive a bit of an intuitive feeling about where that could head. It's not about those kids. It's not about what they're talking about. It's the fact that they're collaborating online together and that in future, hopefully, they'll be finding really great stuff to be collaborating about. They won't be killing avatars of each other in Call of Duty. They'll be building stuff that's really cool and interesting. And I feel like that with social media. At the moment, we're all posting pictures of our dogs. But the important thing is we're gaining training in some kind of collaboration that could pick up speed and turn into something brilliant and wonderful. So if you're an optimist, you might say, well, what if we devoted our social media space to something like cleaning up the environment or mitigating carbon emissions or... You know, what if we were to create fun ways for people to get together online and actually solve problems and build beautiful things? That's where it has to go next. But at the moment, we're still navel-gazing and saying, oh, how great, I can post what I had for lunch. Yeah. That's so cool. How many points do you give me? You know, in other words, we're, we're exploring the form of the communication. We think it's all about content but actually it's about the form of the communication itself. And not all of that is great. You know, the fact that we're doing all of this busy communication on our devices indicates that we're in danger of being addicted to the small, you know, two-by-four screen held in hand and that our heads are slowly becoming our heads and upper bodies are curling downwards ergonomically we're getting, <laughs> you know, we're becoming quite strange, bent over, golem creatures. <laughs> That's the point in a way, isn't it, that we're shackled to our devices. It wouldn't matter what the hell the content was. The fact that as a species we're kind of evolving towards this strange cyber fusion with our 
devices. That's really what's important. Forget the content. So, I, I mean, it's interesting that you say that because I feel as though there's sort of two sides to, to AI in my interpretation. Like on one side, you sort of have people using AI to actually look at their screens less maybe. So if if it was something that could, for example, um, create a Power, Microsoft PowerPoint for them or could summarise notes quickly for them so they don't have to be typing when they're in a meeting. Um, and then on the other hand, I also sort of see the space where um, AI is being utilised to increase engagement, AI is being utilised to really glue people back into their screens. Um, is there any sort of like academic consensus perhaps from, from your perspective as to where the future uh, of AI could lie in terms of is it a force for taking people away or gluing people more to screens? Yeah, um, that's worth considering. Recently, there was the open letter that many people in tech signed um, suggesting that we put a pause on AI development because we simply don't know the answer to questions like that. But we've already seen that the emergent properties, what the geeks call emergent properties, in other words, this is stuff that cannot be foreseen, stuff that just is birthed spontaneously, it seems, from the latest iterations of AI development, particularly within labs like OpenAI, who are um, very beautifully open and transparent about what they're doing. I think the future may mean that we need to look at that open letter, which was put out by a group called the Future of Life Institute that I, I don't know too much about them, but uh, the signatories include the heads of all of the big labs, you know, um, Elon Musk, Tristan Harris from Centre for Humane Technology, um, the, the CEO of OpenAI, they're all suggesting that at this stage we need to slow down because the level of planning and management is not keeping up with the level of uh, technological change that's occurring. And they're seriously worried that we should be slowing down to check what's happening so the machines will not be flooding our information channels with propaganda, will not be coming up with ways of replacing humans in all the jobs, including the groovy creative ones, um, and will not outsmart and make us obsolete. So it seems like that's a pretty big assumption. I think that before the humans come become obsolete, there are many more points along the path of torture where we just sort of slowly degrade, perhaps. Some people would say we're already there. Some people would say that first television and then the internet is actually dumbing us down. Um, I certainly don't agree with that. I think that we humans are amazingly um, inspired and assisted by our technological tools. But I do think we've got to take a close look, particularly in regard to developments around what we call... Um, AGI, which is artificial general intelligence, which is a different thing from artificial intelligence. And artificial general intelligence um, is defined as that which attempts to somehow uh, mimic or program human scale intelligence. 
And the Silicon Valley people are saying, we're already there. We're, we're seeing the first glimmers of this. Uh, so we need to slow down and figure it out. Just in the, in the same way as we did with key technologies such as cloning or uh, with recombinant DNA. They quickly, back at the end of the 20th century, put ethical guide rails around those new technologies because they recognised they could be threatening to our species in general. So it's an interesting point where the humans are currently realising that um, there are going to be really dramatic economic, political, social, maybe health implications to all of this. And so we need to just stop. And they're suggesting that this needs to happen on an industry level. You can't just rely on individual companies to have a conscience about this, that it needs to be regulated somehow. Is there a danger in the approach being to stop it? Because OpenAI and the things it can bring can revolutionise the world, the inventions that it can help build, the programs it can help run. It might help in medical research. It can help us educate ourselves faster. It can help business owners and all these things. And stopping that for a year could... The opportunity cost is maybe people um, don't get that. They don't get access to the research that could have saved their lives. They might not have been as economically stable as they otherwise could have. Is there a way then that we can avoid all the harms by really just focusing on developing regulations and that research without completely halting AI? Yes. We're not talking about halting AI. Um, and we've already reached a point of amazing development where we really can't quite cope. Anyway, mm. uh, no, they're just talking about a six-month backward step from what is now seen as a fairly dangerous race towards these black box models. And by black box models, you know, they're not transparent. They're not knowable entirely. Uh, and they also have emergent capabilities that mean they can, they can uh, produce paradigm shifts um, rapidly and unpredictably. So th in other words, things can go pear-shaped very quickly and get out of control. To me, it's a bit comparable to the kind of research that was happening at Los Alamos um, in the 30s and 40s, late 30s, early 1940s, when the US was developing the atomic bomb. And they brought all the best minds together uh, in one lab to essentially develop the A-bomb, <laughs> um, which was successful. Um, so these guys are saying, look, we've come together, we've seen there's enough potential here for this to really backfire and go pear-shaped in a very negative way that could infect the entire species. So it's a moment where, you know, the human species doesn't very often have these moments. Usually they're restricted to discussions of religion, for example, there would have to be a second coming of some miraculous figure in order for us to have, or the, or the aliens would visit, and that would give us a moment of self-reflection. But this is the equivalent, in a way. It's like um, a very large movement of people saying, whoa, just hold on for a sec, we need to pause. 
And so we need to listen to that. This is beyond the need for profits, I think. I suppose the the real overlap here between sort of what Business One does and, and your expertise is the idea of innovation. Um, it's a simple question, but I feel like it's one that's quite relevant. So with AI in and of itself being an innovation, is there a risk that AI comes to replace our natural human uh, inclination, I suppose, towards being innovative? Yes. Good question. I was listening recently to a conversation on a podcast given by the wonderful Lex Friedman in the US, where he was talking with Max Tegmark, who is a professor at Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT. And they were discussing this idea um, as to whether if AI goes out of control, and the scientists seem to think this is quite likely... (laughs) That, it, that it's heading in that direction, that its emergent properties are so strong um, that it could easily go pear-shaped very quickly and cause a lot of damage. I think it pops up in the Marvel Universe too, doesn't it? <laughs> that the, wor- the worst and most deadly AI comes from us yes. and is a product of us. And that's an interesting idea because it helps us realise that AI is a mirror for us, really. When we're talking about AI and the problems of AI, they're really human problems, aren't they? Yeah. And I guess we have to ask ourselves, do we really need stuff to be bigger, faster, smarter, stronger? At this point, you know, why would we need things to get any faster than they already are? We can't keep up with ourselves. Mm. Why would we want a tool that would potentially drive us to do things even faster? To me, this is just a rerun of the first industrial revolution, really. People like the World Economic Forum talk about the fourth industrial revolution and they're very rah-rah about AI. We should be very suspicious of the World Economic Forum because they're very keen on the old rules of capitalism as far as I see it, which are about exploitation uh, of the workers. And so this is really just back to first industrial revolution imperatives around profit, optimization, squeezing more juice out of the worker, producing more product for less money. Um, it's the same kind of ethos. I don't see anything different there. And it was exactly that kind of thinking that led us into the fix we're in now as far as the environment and climate change and all of that. You know, there are so many problems. Why aren't we working hammer and nail to solve those problems? Let's not be too distracted by this whole discussion of AI as though it were, you know, some sort of... I don't know, it's, it's, it's really distracting, isn't it? When there are so many problems that need solutions, why aren't we pressing the current versions of AI into the service of the species? Yeah. That would be one good way. Look at sustainability guidelines and governance and perhaps the imperative needs to be 
the problem solving has to relate to uh, helping out our metropolitan areas, our regions, our planetary guardianship, you know, the real questions around the planet. I think what the really interesting point is the linkage between the dangers of AI being the problems with humans. So I think when a lot of people think about the scariness of AI and what it can do, it's a lot more kind of a general vague concept. What can happen with AI? Where can it go? It's that uncertainty. What will happen with jobs? I think when I looked into it and I found like the things that scare me, it's a lot more the way bad people are using AI. So I found that people have used ChatGPT to help them write hate speech in a way they can get around Twitter's algorithms and censorship like that. It's helping people buy unlicensed guns, helping people organize attacks. Also, a lot of the data privacy stuff, it's people just going on top of ChatGPT, trying to get like passcodes for companies, for people who are using it for their work and things like that. Do you think that that kind of stuff is the biggest danger, the way people are using it? Or do you think it's more just the way that it's kind of stripping away our innovation and our imagination and things like that? Yeah, and I think it's encouraging imagination and innovation mm. in many ways. You're absolutely right about bad actors. Mm. Um, once, you know, if bad actors get their hands on this stuff, it's the equivalent of nuclear fuel, isn't it, really? Mm. It's like a nuclear bomb. Um, that's always the case, though. We're used to dealing with the baddies, aren't we? The classic good and bad good and evil uh, empire struggle will continue. Um, Yeah, maybe one of the pressing questions here is what about also trying to understand our own brain? When I say we're distracted by AI, one of the things we could also, apart from looking at our stewardship of the planet and the environment, um, why aren't we investing more research into understanding how our own onboard software works, which is far more intricate, detailed, productive, uh, unexplored, has so much potential. We don't really even understand the human brain sufficiently yet. Why aren't we putting more resources, uh, including AI resources, into understanding how we might perhaps reinvest in understanding how human memory works. Maybe we could develop mnemonic systems like First Nations people do to create a better relationship between us and our environment. Why are we putting all of this effort into the black boxes on the table in front of us when we should be out of doors investing in a relationship with the environment? That's one of the biggest questions. And understanding the relationship between our brain and our environment. That's, these, these are the questions that we're ignoring while we're down the rabbit hole tinkering with code. <laughs> it's our human code that we need to understand and how it relates to environmental code. Yeah, and... I suppose we've sort of talked a, a lot about the, the, the risks of AI um, and 
where, you know, things can go wrong. Uh, I would love to know, and, and we've discussed this before, but I would love to know what your perspective is on um, regulation, on, on the regulation of AI. And, and I bring this up because uh, I've heard this saying many times, but they say that, that the law is, is 10 years behind um, where it should be, is 10 years behind societal norms, values, uh, and whatnot. So in terms of AI, what, what should we perhaps expect from lawmakers? What's the best way to approach uh, regulation? Is there a need for regulation? I'll, I'll refer to my friend and colleague, uh, Justine Lacey, at CSIRO, which is the Commonwealth Scientific Industrial Research Organisation here in Australia. And she's the head of their responsible innovation platform, responsible science. And it seems that in, in their research and in their discussions, if you look at the international frameworks, and Australia's quite... Um, we're, quite, we're part of the international conversation that's happening right now around regulation of AI and the ethics around AI. And people seem to be concluding, uh, researchers and policy makers uh, around the world seem to be concluding that we don't need a whole new raft of regulation. We need to update existing regulation. That we've already got great platforms for human rights, for um, safety in certain scientific kinds of contexts, uh, ethics in science, ethics in health. The work has already been done. We've already invented the wheel. We just need to look at those frameworks and update them so that they can apply in an AI context. Now, it would be great to think that that was possible, but the recent developments in the US seem to suggest that they are insisting that the thing is so unpredictable that you really need to generate dedicated, new, dedicated thinking. So who are going to be the people doing that? Um, it will be your generation and people like you who pop up and do this extra work on law engineering, health, uh, and figure out the ethics around it. But in reference to previously existing frameworks. I think it, it might be worth talking a bit about the human touch and its value in AI. So one of the things that a lot of people have seen circulating around is how cool this stuff can be for like mimicking voices. So you can see famous artists like Kanye or someone just having old songs from the 80s and their voice being covered. And it's kind of scary to think about in the future. If I wanted to be a singer, I can go to the recording studio, sing for like two hours so they get a model of my voice, and then everyone else can do it from there. They can write the songs for me, use my voice, do the marketing, all of that. And is that a good thing or a scary thing that we can have just that human feel taken away. Like, people are already upset when people use auto-tune when they're doing live performances, but now we're seeing the artist just has to appear for a day and then they're kind of done. <laughs> yeah, you, you're describing a sort of dreamscape to me. <laughs> you know, it's, it's very dreamy, it's hallucinatory, it's trippy, it's slightly unhinged, 
because you're in a state where you think it and it can happen. But if you've been watching the Black Mirror series mm. on Netflix, <laughs> which is all about kind of the... It's the double-edged sword, isn't it? The double-edged sword. I think it's Damocles who has the double-edged sword. So the thing can be ecstatic on one hand and it can torture us on the other. Uh, and what you do with that fine balance, I don't know, but I think caution is probably advisable. I, I've said I've said to you before when, when we first spoke over, over coffee, um, you're... The perspective that you bring to to my mind is very unique, and it's one that I haven't heard before because you incorporate um, a historical perspective into the way you approach looking at the future of of AI uh, and innovation in the AI space. And I think that you know, if I sort of apply that to the startup space as well, there is a risk of um, perhaps founders or the people that are around founders looking too much to the future, um, what their startup could look like, and perhaps not looking at uh, maybe examples from the past of other people um, and what they did successfully and, and what wasn't done right. So to, to that extent, I, I, I would ask, are we looking too much into the future when it comes to AI uh, and innovation in the space and not enough to the past? Mm. Well, it's always good to understand from our mistakes, isn't it? So that's a good reason to look at the past. But if you understand the concept of... Um, there was a book written by... I think his last name is Taleb. Perhaps you might look it up as we speak. Black Swan. Black Swan events. Um, so the author is a finance analyst who reckons that there's no point really, looking backwards, because you're biased in your view when you look back at history. It's selective viewing. Um, and that stuff happens that's usually beyond our ability to predict. So, yeah, I, I'm, I'm not advocating a looking forward or a huge looking back. We've just got to be super aware of what's happening in the now. It's hard enough understanding what's happening right here, right now, isn't it, without putting too much faith in thinking that you can make predictions based on the past. And certainly people who are talking as if they know what's going to happen in the future are by definition baloney. That's kind of a version of snake, snake oil salesmanship, I think. And a lot of people make their living out of calling themselves futurists and... You know, but it's it's very um, it's it's not reliable, is it, to think you can predict the future? We're not reading tarot cards here, um, but there are certain things we can bank on, and it's probably you know Shoshana Zuboff has written a wonderful book called The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, and she says it's all about power. And it's about the power that the technology companies wield. So it's sort of, you know, up until now, I've been anxious that the technology companies have been talking about AI as though it was a form of magic. Um, and they weren't really so open about the proceedings. But that open letter that was signed by all of the chief executives is a really good sign that they're starting to understand 
the asymmetrical power that they are actually wielding. And by asymmetry, I just simply mean there's an uneven balance. So Zuboff, for example, she comes out of Harvard um, and she's made a very close study of Google and all of the big tech companies and AI, but particularly Google um, and the automation automated advertising and the use of algorithms to suck data from all of us citizens. Um, and what does that mean? And she concludes that there's this current asymmetry in knowledge and innovation that the companies uh, have not been letting us know what they're doing <clears throat> up until now, that the surveillance capitalists, so she calls them, know everything about us, whereas their operations are designed to be unknowable to us. So they know everything about us. We don't know much about them. OpenAI, which is one of the Elon Musk labs, is much more transparent than that. And for that reason, it's really interesting to observe OpenAI and what they're doing because they say, we want to be open to the world, partly because their machines are learning more. They are, their AIs can learn more, their programmers learn more when they get input from us. There's also perhaps an asymmetry in capacity and control. There's this thing about our lives, are our lives just becoming behavioural data, which is going to help others control us? Are we willingly handing over our data to others who are going to use it to control us. So your discussion about, oh, how great, the people now, the market, the market merchant bankers <laughs> are able to log off for 2.3 hours to tend to their families and children <laughs> at night and then they have to log back on to work. How sweet, yeah. you know. Yeah. They're, they're sort of giving up their freedom willingly, mm. aren't they? That's a human tendency that we've got to be aware of. There are also asymmetries in in size and scale. These firms now are huge. They are, this is what contemporary digital capitalism is about. Um, they're, they're having enormous impact on employment, industry concentration, monopoly. We saw that particularly with Amazon. You know, Jeff Bezos is famous for just scaling up, scaling up and scaling up. So is Google. It's about huge scale. Do we trust them? Or uh, by definition, is this unacceptable, this monopolistic focus of power and control? In the past, we've been warned by the sages and the political theorists that this is the worst thing that can happen. Um, resources are now asymmetric. The rules of the game have been transformed so that unimaginable um, unimaginable kind of rules outside of the wealth, you know, the wealth and scientific prowess is all being focused inside these huge organisations and that that asymmetry is very dangerous and that's the thing that needs to be redressed immediately so that while... The, some of the tech companies are saying we need to slow down our development of AI. Maybe there's a bigger question here. Should we be slowing down the development of the tech companies? 
So they're really difficult questions. They're, they're questions that need to go both to, to the designers of AI, people who are designing the applications and the tools, um, but they've also got to go to us at the level of community and the level of government so that we can identify the risks and benefits that we're up against. This has been a really interesting conversation, delving into your experience in Hollywood, to memes, to AI, to all of this. Given all the experience you have and all the perspectives and fears you have on AI, what is your advice to kind of the younger generation who are listening to this, still figuring out what they want to do, who they want to be? Mm. I'm really interested in your generation, you know, the People, I hate to sound ageist, but people under 30 um, have an intuitive grasp on a lot of these issues. People under 25 have an even stronger intuitive grasp. You know, the kids who grew up with devices in their little chubby little infantile hands are the ones who really know how to get in there, do the research, wrangle the machines. Um, yeah, so I suppose that empowering yourself with research, with reading, and then acting on it, acting with the tools, exploring the tools, getting into the scripting and the coding yourself, which, of course, is the newest and perhaps the scariest capability of AI, is that it's capable of uh, writing its own code. Um, that's where you can get active and get engaged and perhaps stick to the old school method of small local collectives um, and then perhaps link up with international collectives who share your values. But I think that young people should take charge and get more active in the world. Awesome. That's some really insightful advice. Uh, thank you again, Lisa, for taking the time today. It has truly been a really interesting conversation. Um, yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thank you to everyone who has been listening at home and we'll see you next time.